Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to your latest and greatest episode of your second favorite podcast. If you've stopped listening to WTF, this is your first favorite podcast. <laughs> I am Carl Slominski here with the ever-beautiful Miss... Jenna Wright. And today, we have a special guest with us. A very special guest, all the way from Los Angeles, California. We would like to introduce writer, director, jack-of-all-trades... Nate Ruger. Nate, say hello. Hello. Glad to be here. Yes, we are glad to have you. (laughs) We are glad to have you. Uh, Nate is somebody who I met when I lived in LA a few years ago, and he is a kind and wonderful gentleman who happens to dig uh, film and writing and all of those good things as much as we do. And Carl's met him through... The interwebs. The interwebs, where we meet all the, you know, mostly good people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nate's probably the best, though. Nate's one of the best, absolutely. Oh, I, I try. I try. So, Nate, why don't we start off, why don't you tell us, uh, from as far back as you want to go, maybe all the way to the beginning, how, like, what's your story? Where are you coming from? And if you can tell everybody your claim to fame as a wee one... I think everybody would enjoy that. <laughs> that uh, yeah, that, that, that is definitely not going unmentioned. Uh, so uh, I uh, grew up in uh, the City of Angels in Los Angeles. Uh, I, uh, many folks in Los Angeles are from everywhere else. I cheated. I am from that place. Uh, I very much lucked into being a family of entertainers growing up around filmmakers, writers, animators. Uh, my big claim to fame uh, first started out as being the child of uh, my dad, Tom Ruger, who uh, was the creator of Animaniacs. Uh, I, he was one of the lead writers on Tiny Toon Adventures. Uh, there are a slew of other shows. I was I found out after of my parents' house that uh, having Emmys on your mantle is not common. Not <laughs> everyone has that experience growing up. It's totally normal. Yeah. It's totally. I mean, my family had a uh, an ASCAP award um, and a Grammy that they had yeah, to hide. Yeah, sure. Wait to the the EGOT. Wow. Oh, yeah. Nice. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, I I was very happy, lucky to live in that family uh, where being creative and writing and talking about music and all the wonderful artsy fartsy things are not looked down upon, but it's it's the bread and butter that's keeping the roof over your head. Um, and uh, I did theater like a lot of kids, and uh, I remember being Charlie Brown when I was like fourth grade or something like that. And my dad and mom and my mother, who's an actress, also very much into like oh. My son was interested in storytelling and acting, and and uh, my dad had an idea for a handful of characters, one of whom, uh, which folks who are young enough to remember Tiny Toon Adventures, there's a cameo uh, where you, there's a main character, Plucky the Duck. I loved Plucky the Duck! Who reminisced about his potty years in the episode or segment called Potty Years, in which I was uh, the voice of Little Plucky, or as many <laughs> folks know, Baby Plucky. <laughs> and... Uh, that was uh, all based on my youngest brother, Cody. He actually did all of those things in that segment of flushing everything he could get his hands on down the toilet. It <laughs> didn't fit that. Uh, and then in Animaniacs, I did the voice of a character, uh, Skippy the Squirrel, which was uh, playing against a character that Sherry Stoner had created, who is a writer, actress on that show that was uh, where she was kind of playing like if you could imagine that they're the, the cartoons we grew up with 
or that we think we grew up with Looney Tunes and stuff like that from like the 50s and 40s actually do grow old and get cranky and make fun of the, uh, characters. Like <laughs> you reminded me of a very young Scooby-Doo. Like was pretty much where uh, Slack the Squirrel was coming from. I like that. I like and that I a lot. Played, yeah, uh, and I played her nephew, uh, Skippy the Squirrel, who was just the yin to her yang. Just uh, where she was cranky and grumpy, I was... Uh, bright and full of optimism and hope and had uh, uh, like one of my more famous quotes is like, oh, now of course I'm forgetting. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, so, like, uh, but, but that happens in cartoons and this is real life! Yeah. And to which uh, Slappy Squirrel turns the camera and is like, don't tell him, it'll break him. <laughs> uh, I almost feel like that's a good metaphor for our creative's life though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sometimes you need that fourth wall break to go, oh yeah, this is just a script. Okay, mm. all right. Okay, um, but uh, so I grew up doing that, and that was a, a wonderful, weird thing where I felt like I was like a miniature superhero. It's where I'd like, go to school by day, and then make weird mouth noises professionally with my face at night. <laughs> and, and, uh, but at the same time, it happened at this point in my life, which was not the best point for a kid growing up to have. That, like, right when I was like, oh, I think that, like, that young woman will like me back. Maybe she could invite me or I could invite her to the prom or something. That was right when I was like, hey, aren't you the voice of that little squirrel thing? Oh, you're adorable. <laughs> Just, like, not the point in my life when I wanted to be associated with a kid's thing. I'm like, no, I'm 13, 14, stop with the kid stuff. <laughs> right, right. And uh, so it made me, like, a socially well-known for not the reasons you want to be socially well-known in the, the high school rat race. Um, but I did have a, a good group of friends. Um, but what it kind of opened up for me uh, uh, was that while, as much as I loved voice acting and uh, and I got a huge kick out of it and working with some of the, the best voice actors, like to this day, I'll watch cartoons and go, oh yeah, that's, that's Terry Stoner right there, and that's Jess McNeil, the voice of Dodd, and that's Maurice LaMarche, the voice of the brain. Like, I can just hear their voices and, and know their work and their craft. Um, but uh, I remembered uh, being in the booth, and uh, I was very lucky to work with um, Andrea Romano, who if you, uh, I think you guys mentioned in a previous episode you've been watching, unless I'm misremembering, uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender? I don't think we mentioned it, but I've definitely watched it, yeah. Turn name pop up as voice director after like every episode. Mm -hmm. like, almost everything she works on, she gets an Emmy for. Wow, she's fantastic. Um, but uh, I remembered doing voice acting work and getting uh, like, hold on just a moment, getting like a pause, and I'm hearing nothing, and I'm seeing on the other side of the glass are uh, the sound engineers and sound designers and directors and the writers and my dad and producers all talking about, okay, well, if we do this, I didn't hear what they were saying, but then uh, someone else would go in and my dad's still working and he's taking me home. And I'd be on the other side of the class after I did my lines and hearing the producers just have this like five minute conversation about, okay, well, maybe we don't need that line. Can you cut that? And then we had got that five minute segment that we, why don't we just do a, uh, this different segment here and just realizing like, oh my gosh, there's this like, it needs to be like honed and cultivated by all these creative types that involve this army of people that are really good at their different department, whether it's animating or writing or acting. And like, this is the room I want to be in. This is the room where it happens. I love voice acting. It's fantastic. And I love working with the actors to this day, but like, that's 
the side of the table that I want to be on. And I kind of grew up loving that. And uh, so that was my, my big claim to fame to kind of put this on fast forward and not just spend the whole episode <laughs> talking about uh, <laughs> Animaniacs. Uh, that uh, my uh, having a, an actress for a mom and having a writer producer for a dad uh, we watched not your average kind of movies for family movie night. We watched like Hitchcock double features and I'd have my mom in one ear talking performances, my dad in the other ear pointing out like how and why they use different shots. So I got like a little mini film school before I actually did go to film school. That's incredible though. That's um, incredible. <laughs> you're like our own little yeah. personal Max Landis. <laughs> in a good way. In a good way. In a good way. Positivity. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so uh, when you're a kid and you watch a cartoon or a movie, it really does look like, and, and to credit to the, the good filmmakers and the good movies out there, that the actors are just making up as they go along and there just happens to be a camera filming all of it while it happens. Mm -hmm. But that's, as we know, that is not how movies or television shows or anything creative gets made. It, it's not just like stream of consciousness. And so um, that's what I think my parents helped instill in me is like, you know, there were some really intelligent conscious choices being made in where you put a camera, how you light an actor's face, and, and what the actor says and does. And and uh, I think the thing that really helped click for me in film school, it took me like until my final year of film school when I was working on my thesis film, where I was, a, my thesis film was a story called Another Life, and it was about a young woman who had three days to kill uh, another man or else both of them would get killed. And uh, it was really kind of a way to the story under that story was that she was wrestling with uh, PTSD and had just come back from uh, the war in Iraq. And, uh, and it was, what is that life like? And, uh, and I was trying to think, okay, like I know from a story what I want to tell, but how do you visualize it? How do you make it a movie? How do you make it something that you're seeing and feeling rather than just reading about? And the image that popped in my head was, oh, okay. This is like, like a, was a Dickensian image of like an orphan looking in on a candy shop where all the rich kids are getting, uh, or their parents are buying them something. And I went, oh, okay, I know what that, and that kind of became my lens through which uh, all of these questions get asked of me as a director. Like, what like, color light do you want here? Do you want it to be blue or orange or uh, do you want it to be dark or bright? And that became, once I kind of knew that's kind of what the, the whole crux of the film is, I knew to go, oh, okay, all right, her apartment is going to be cold, it's going to be cool, it's going to be um, uh, very, that you don't really see very much what's going on in there, you just, it's very uh, dim, whereas the life that she wants to get into, the person that she unfortunately has to try to kill, is very warm and very brightly lit, a lot of orange colors, and so that's the kind of point where I went from, oh, okay, here's a script of a story I know. And here's how you answer all of those questions that were, uh, it was kind of a, a big turning point for me. Cause I remember being a kid with my dad watching all of these movies, uh, that I really loved. And I remember 12 monkeys being the one that hit a spot for me. Oh, it's like, such you know, this a good is a movie. great, yeah. uh, an amazingly like directed movie. I remember like being like, I want to be a director and watching that movie going, I can't do that. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> for the record, watching a Gilliam movie as a kid and saying, I want to be a director is profound. Like, how did you not quit just then and there? <laughs> well, yeah, and that's what I felt like. I felt like that's it. Like, there's no way I can ever measure up to that. It's impossible. But then like watching the features and went, oh, 
he had a hundred people who are like a production designer who's production designed tons of movies. Right. Who he said like a totalitarian feel to this future. He goes, got it. Here are a bunch of like images of what the chair looks like that he sits in. That um, here's what like time travel could look like from a cinematography perspective. You have all these people that are at the top of their field. They're there to help you. That's what I think is kind of like if you work with the right people in filmmaking, you realize that it's not one of the best things you can say on a set or when you're doing something is, I don't know. What do you think? And uh, you have people who can sit around the table and help you. Yeah, that's the right folks. Yeah, that's the thing. Like coming from uh, just when I first started out, it was only writing for years and years. It took me a second to realize that, like, if you want to be a director, you don't have to know everything about everything because the whole point of the film is finding people that will support you and help you and that you can ask questions of and they won't make you feel like an idiot. Like, you're not supposed to know that, like, this is a setup this way. Like, ask for people's help. And, like, if they're not jerks, everybody's going to try and help make the best film possible. Yeah, I think that the thing that helped me was that... uh, uh you can on, and it, it helps to know something about every department to try and speak that language. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the only thing that like a really, the only person that like a, a cinematographer can set up lights, go through lenses that you say, I'm thinking about this kind of shot. That's like a close up. The cinematographer, if you're not well versed, if you don't got it, I know what lens to use. I know what, uh, setups to tell, uh, the, the grips to do, uh, what kind of, floppies or lighting or what have you uh production designer you can say like oh i think this room should feel cold and like if you just don't know how to speak the language of product of what type of elements you know uh what should be on the walls whether it should be painted which um that can be like the only thing a director really needs to know is what to tell the actors no one else on set is talking to the actors right right and so it kind of helped me knowing how to talk to the actors and if there are any young writers out there who are listening and want to direct but are terrified of talking to the actor folks something that really kind of helped me that like even though i did do it professionally even though i was a kid did tech acting classes in high school and college and all that like the best thing you can tell actors is like really just uh do a kind of like quick mental exercise empathize imagine you just suddenly flipped you're on the other side you're getting someone telling you like uh to do this scene what do you want to hear if someone tells you I like what you did, but do that 10% angrier. <laughs> I, I don't know if anyone knows how to be 10% angry. Right. <laughs> you just end up like mugging. Being like, yeah. And, and so like, the thing that really helps is just like ask, is saying like giving, instead of, uh, there's a really great book I recommend anyone who like directing actors for the first time. It's called Directing Actors. It's by Judith Weston. If you type in directing actors, it should be the first thing that pops up in most search engines. And uh, it's a good first look at how to work with actors. And it really just kind of tries to wrest this thing away from you of uh, don't focus on the, and directing can be very image oriented, but don't fixate on what the image needs to be that you're working with. You're expecting an actor to uh, um, have the certain performance you have in your head, try and trust them to go in a different direction. You're not expecting. I think like catching lightning in a bottle is some of the best experiences on a set. But, uh, and, and so instead of focusing on the result that could be 10% angrier or 10% or 20% from what you're doing, you're uh, giving them an action. It's like, what do you try, you know, um, you know, just vex it, vexing that person. Get sure. under their skin or uh, 
a, a fact, like something I did for uh, my short film that I think really kind of helped with um, uh, that I recently uh, shot, uh, Trust Me, which is a short horror film. Oh yeah, like we're going to be uh, talking about Trust Me, don't you worry. <laughs> Uh, but there, there's a scene at the end where, like, you know, everyone's read the script, everyone knows what happens, and we set, set everything up for, like, the next to final scene, which is, I think, perhaps maybe one of the creepiest parts of it, and, you know, everyone kind of knows it, but it's like, okay, there's something really creepy going to happen. Like, how does the actress walk towards that thing? You're just like, where you as the audience are hopefully going, no, no, oh my god, don't do that, don't do that. <laughs> Yeah. And I tried, like, just started giving what are images, what are facts, what are things that she knows or is hoping to see that would make her not see all the warning signs that your audience is seeing. So that she's imagining, like, something romantic is going to be happening at this moment or something surprising or fun or safe when we're seeing some not romantic things, not safe things <laughs> on screen. <laughs> yeah, uh, before before we hop into, trust me, because I do want to ask you about that, I wanted to ask you, I met you through solely screenwriting. Now, did you always want to be a director as well, or was it something like where you realized, hey, I'm writing my stuff, but like I have a better shot of getting it made if I direct it too, or what was your what was your plan? I think my plan of all writing and directing, I wonder if it had been a little bit my dad like subconsciously nudging me in that direction, like it's right to write something, but you don't get the final cut of your script. Yeah. Else can move <laughs> um, but uh and I think what that kinda was was he pointed me towards Billy Wilder as a really great screenwriter who wrote all these great movies in the forties, fifties, sixties. And Billy Wilder is also known as a great uh, director. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's not something where you compare it, compare the way he has directed things today as like some of the most beautifully visually stylized films of all time. But they're really smart in the way they're directed. And uh, he was a very vocal advocate. If you like, look up what he talks about in terms of screenwriting. That like being a director is a way to have keep creative control of your work. And so that was something I kind of had in the back of my mind. And uh, you guys are out there making stuff on the other side of the country for me. Yeah. Um, and I'm in supposedly the city where you can make things really happen. But I, if, I, I noticed something when I was in film school, which was like five something years ago now, that there was this she change from you just, you're coming out of film school, you made this short film, you've written this script. Uh, now we're going to help you make that script into a movie because you have this pedigree. And it changed from great. You've made that. You made the short film. You made the script. Uh, go do crowdfunding. We'll come find you. We'll see you at the film festival if we're there. And there was just like this sudden weird kind of change. I don't know whether it was the industry with the recession, or you can point to a bunch of different economic uh, signals. But that like it, it became this thing of like, I can keep writing scripts and sending them out into the void, or I can try and take some agency of I'm going to write something small and then make it and show it to people who like it, and now that's my audience. And then just keep trying to grow that audience. And I think that is a good way to think. I think the way you guys are doing it, of, of, of like, you can write a script in the way that you, Jenna, talked about it, and you can make it into a novel. Build an audience of people who love reading your, your novels, or you can uh, keep, on, keep on inking and writing amazing comic books <laughs> that I love and make and cry. How dare you? <laughs> Stop <laughs> it. <laughs> But yeah, it's true. If you if you're, I hate to say, if you're just the writer, 
that puts you, you are always, I feel like at the bottom of the totem pole, you have to be able to basically generate this entire complete package because like you said, sending it out into the void just stops working after a while unless you're very talented and very lucky. <laughs> you you did touch on something that I, I kind of want to get into a little bit, um, creative control. Uh, it's Any first time listener doesn't know this yet, but everybody else knows this. And anyone that knows me, I'm a staunch advocate for that punk rock DIY aesthetic of like, it's your shit, put it out the way you want, fuck everyone else. Do you prefer having complete creative control or is it, do you like the give and take that film offers you, say when you write the script and direct it as well, like with your short, I feel like you got a lot more creative control while watching that as opposed to say, if it was designed by committee, like most film is now. Yeah, no, uh. It's. I think having creative control works really well if you are. I did. I did enjoy the give and take of working on my most recent short film. Trust me, that like there were definitely ideas that came from our cinematographer that I did not come up with, that our writer did not come up with, that are now in the final cut of the film that I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved having them to write on set, and there were things that like because of changes in production design, uh, actors coming up with ideas of how to improvise a scene like having them on set to kind of like rehash an idea for how to shoot something was great. I didn't come up with on my own. I wasn't seeing myself as like an autocrat where all ideas come from me and you, these are your marching orders, <laughs> but definitely, definitely not something where, uh, and I think that's where the creative control comes from that. Uh, I think when I was in film school, there was this idea of like, you have a thing and then you go to a studio with a marketing department that, and if, you know, if you're making hundred million dollar movies, God bless you. Keep doing that. Um, but I think you kind of have to take in yourself that you're your own marketing department. You're mm-hmm. your own promotional department. You're, Absolutely. You're your own publicist. Maybe get to a point in your career where you can afford something like that. Cool. But I think at this point, you can't just say that I am just the writer, the writing department, and then the promotional department or all the other different departments that you need to get a sale, build a career, are kind of on you. And, right. Uh, and there's the best thing about uh, the internet now and podcasts like this is that there's more than ever uh, access to those kind of resources to go, how can I do that by myself and still kind of you know, make this happen? Right. And plus, you're your own best advocate. I mean, nobody's going to love your project as much as you do, you know, as much as they, they, they like it. It's, gonna, it's always going to be like, this is my thing and I did it and like, love it like I do, guys. I beg to differ. I'm the complete opposite. Anytime I put something out there, I'm just like, I hope you like it more than I do by this well, point. Well, you're a weirdo. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> um, Nate, so, okay, so your short film is called Trust Me, a witness account of the yes. goat man, and it is a rom-com. You <laughs> cry, <laughs> <laughs> you need the tissues next to you, your heart swells with warmth. Yeah. Uh, yeah, bring your kids. Yeah, uh, it's a date night movie, totally. Uh, <laughs> so, it worked for our date night, but I don't, I don't know. Um, tell us how the idea came to be. Tell us uh, what made you decide, like this was the idea that you had to do. Like, tell us your entire plan. How did it come? How did it come to be? Sure. Yeah. So this is one of the things that is uh, great about having a creative community. Things like this do happen in Los Angeles. Um, we'll see if this comes to a, a bigger success story, but uh, this actually did happen. My wife's boss's girlfriend and I uh, kept meeting at the company uh, holiday party. 
where um, Insomniac Games, a Fantastica video game company, and uh, they would throw these crazy awesome uh, parties where uh, there's a, uh, Jenny, if you might remember in Los Angeles, there's this uh, beautiful Japanese restaurant on a hill called Yamashiro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would like entire restaurant and uh and uh we'd have the whole place to ourselves with like you know uh tables and tables of free sushi and a live karaoke band and 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 i'm just invited for free to enjoy all this this stuff and it's december and i'm ready to talk about people like oh did you see these movies that might win an oscar and all these great movies and it's like uh, i've been playing video games for 80 hours a week is my job i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> these movies Leslie, uh, who went who wrote Trust Me, is there, and she's the only other person who wants to talk about movies. And we started doing this weird thing where we see each other like once a year at this party, and just kind of ask her significant other, like, uh, "Hey, um, uh, do you know if Nate's gonna go? It doesn't matter if he is, but do you know if Leslie's <laughs> gonna go to this party? It's okay. Like, I just I like spending time with you, but if they're there, that's I just and uh, and so eventually she just kind of messaged me out of the blue, like, "Hey, I've been trying to make this short film for a while, and our director dropped out. Would you be interested?" And I just was like, uh, yeah, that sounds great. In the back of my mind, I had been telling myself over and over again, I'm not making another short film ever again in the rest of my life. I'm just going to make a feature all by myself. <laughs> I read the thing and I went, oh my God, this is going to be so much fun. Um, and uh, also, like, this is something like uh, I was mentioning writing, directing. Uh, I don't think she ever wanted want to call herself uh, Leslie, a writer, uh, a producer, but her hustle was that, like, she told me, like, not only did she write the script, we have a location. We have a producer. We have uh, all the props already. We have the actors already. We have the editor lined up. We have, so it was just like they just needed to like slot me in and find a cinematographer, and they were good to go. Wow. It's like okay, that that that, that makes it so much easier for me to say yes rather than like okay, I gotta <laughs> find a whole crew and and uh, the however for folks who are trust me fans. Uh, it has been a while getting this together. Um, uh, uh, the the truth of the story of how it uh, is that we did need to find the funds um, that like uh, folks who follow very closely the the crowdfunding uh, unity to try and like there are all these stories out there of, of folks making movies for like eight thousand dollars an entire feature film, or uh, or making a feature film for like you know twenty thousand dollars. And how that gets done is someone who has slowly been building a reputation in the film community. And then they cash in every one of their favors and everyone works for free. Mm. And that yeah. $20,000 is all top of the line equipment, which is still insanely discounted. Right. Like a, we got an amazing camera for our short film and what we, and that was, a, and I was amazed that we could get that camera for how much our, our whole budget was. Um, so a big part of making this film was getting the, uh, was, crowdfunding and that was something where I had to kind of like take my writer's cap and director's cap off and put it to the side and then just for like a month and a half I was just working basically on my own marketing right and uh, it feels weird from a certain perspective to think why did you stop writing why did you stop working on like lookbooks as a director and, and that's just like a, a part of like making shutting up and making your own stuff hey we're on brand <laughs> um and uh, and then the next piece of it came together is that uh, uh, if if we just suddenly like body swapped and you two were making this movie out in your neck of the woods, literally, you guys could have made this over the weekend. That in Los Angeles, finding 
this movie that is, uh, uh, did I skip entirely through the, the synopsis? Oh. <laughs> um, Tell us what it's about, Nate, I'm dying! Alright, so, uh, trust me, A Witness of the Goatman is about a young woman who is, uh, taken into the woods by her boyfriend for a romantic surprise, except that is not what she ends up finding. What she ends up finding is the legend of the Goatman. Which and, is terrifying, uh, by the way. Terrifying. Yeah, I didn't know it was a real thing until we watched it. It's unsettling. <laughs> uh, so, uh, for any uh, horror fans who are listening, which I imagine are uh, uh, a non-zero amount, <laughs> uh, if you enjoy creepypasta or you would like to hear about uh, this particular corner of creepypasta, there is a figure known in uh, American folklore as uh, the Goatman. Um, it's, it actually has many different names. Um uh, but it's a it's a cryptid that can look like you, sound like you, walk right up to your family, and they believe it is you. And so they start noticing these like non-human ticks that it's actually just a mimic that has just been fixating on like the handful of bits of dialogue it's heard in the woods. And uh, and it's very much in the realm of the thing, uh, uh, except that it's you don't have to go to Antarctica to find it. It's just you know. It's just Waiting hanging out in your local L.A. woods. <laughs> yeah. And and speaking of the L.A. woods, uh, those don't exist. I was no. going to say, it might be gone. It might be in, it might be ash right now. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, finding that location was a big, big chunk of our pre-production. And, and once we finally found that location, it was about a month or two until we actually got to... Uh, got to filming, getting like our whole uh, film crew set on, okay, this is how we're filming this scene, this is uh, doing a tech scout and all that, and then we were shooting pretty soon after that. How um, how long was your shoot? So, uh, uh, it was a weekend, it was three days. Wow. Oh, nice. Wow, that's great. And, uh, and so you, we were yeah. lucky enough to see kind of a rough cut of the film, because we knew we were going to be chatting about it, but you are in post-production right now, and uh, what is your, what's your plan? Uh, the plan now is uh, I'm actually meeting with a uh, composer tomorrow morning. We're doing a, a spotting session. We're going over where all the, the temp music is now and talking about what the, the final score is going to be. Uh, we're going to be working with a sound designer to everything that you heard in the rough cut. Uh, it's all temp sound effects, of, uh, especially with a creature that is uh, using sound against uh, the main characters, mm-hmm. um, that is trying to sound just like a human but a little bit off or different i really would love to like use the full you know power of pro tools to just kind of sure creep people um and then uh then we've got a uh, color correction like uh to just uh if you ever watch a, sh- uh, a movie and you just go like oh my god their eyes are so blue or that background looks so creepy or dark it's just doing that little bit of like polish that takes it from oh yeah it's pretty good oh my gosh this is a really goddamn good movie mm-hmm. um once we've got all those pieces together, then it's sending it out to film festivals and, and crossing our fingers. And uh, uh, just by talking about it and stuff like this, there are a handful of folks that are just like, oh my God, that sounds cool. Send it to me once it's done. We've, so we've got our fingers in a, a few pies with a few folks hoping it uh, it makes some traction. Now, is the uh, ultimate goal to pull something like a Lights Out where you guys end up developing it for like a feature length sort of thing? Or is this just a leap pad? That is- uh, I'd love for it to do both. Yeah. <laughs> if, if folks look at it and say, I want to work with that producer, that writer, that director, cinematographer. Awesome. 
but uh, we're not just going to throw it into the universe and expect the universe to come back. Like, uh, I think it, it can, uh, I am working with the writer, um, like, okay, if there's some to follow up from, from this, if people were to say, oh, that's cool, what's next? And we just go, boom, this, funded. Right. Yeah. Right. We'd love to be, do that. That's the thing. You always have to have your next thing. And it's even better if you have two or three next things. Because if they don't like the first one you toss at them, then you have the next and the next and the next. Like, yes, I am an idea factory. And here are all of my wonderful, glorious things I can propose to you. Vanna White, that shit. That's right. <laughs> you um, you uh, also, aside from the short film, though, are, I feel like, knee deep. Like, talking about shutting up and making stuff. You have like at least two or three full-length feature scripts you're working on right now, right? Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, there was a, a script that uh, I worked on with uh, a, a science fiction writer, Laura Mache, that I, I love. Uh, I'd love to find a good home for it. Um, she wrote a fantastic uh, uh, short science fiction short story that blew my mind that I just, I think for the good part of half a year, I was just like, just completely jealous. And I was like, why the hell Write this thing, <laughs> um, and until and just getting up the gumption to kind of say like, because uh, she she gave it to me like, hey, you're a fellow screenwriter. I'm thinking about trying to do a screenplay. How do I do it? And I just like eat my hat and say like, I, I want to write for you, but I, I kind of gave her the keys to the kingdom. Like, here's how I would go about writing it. Here are all the things you can do. And I got back to her six months later. I'm just like, can I please write it for you, please, please, please. <laughs> He came back and said, like, I've been trying to write it, and I, let's work on it together. And that's one of the best collaborations I've had. Um, um, but it, it is not a science fiction in your backyard type movie. It is definitely like, a, uh, let's see if uh, we can get uh, James Cameron's folks involved or something. It is right. just completely go up uh, kind of crazy science fiction idea that I love. Yes. Like I was saying. Yeah. Uh, that I will do a, a feature follow-up to trust me. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is something that I'm slowly but surely working on uh, with uh, with Leslie, the, the writer of... Uh, uh, Leslie O'Neill, the writer of Trust Me. I've, I'm working on a, uh, a completely different science fiction, more of a, a romantic thriller science fiction, if you are even allowed to do that. You uh, are. I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that I'm trying to bang that out by the end of the year. And, and then I'm just kicking the tires and a few other ideas, um, like, uh, uh, something that kind of, um, I was very fortunate to get a script of mine on the blood list last year. Yeah, you were. It was well awesome. Done. Well list. done. Um, uh, uh, as, as Jenna Wells knows. Um, <laughs> I read it. Uh, that script is awesome. <laughs> that was the one you sent me, wasn't it? It's, uh, the one about <laughs> the witches. Yeah. Yeah, and so I wrote mm -hmm. that as to your, your shut up and make stuff ethos. If like I wrote that first as this is something I'm just gonna go make with a bunch of friends in my backyard, the same way that we kind of went about making Trust Me, mm -hmm. and I was in the thick of that and going like I want to make this thing when uh, when Leslie came to me with the script for Trust Me, and a lot of good friends kind of coached me and like you haven't actually like been talking to a cinematographer and a production designer, all these people swirling around you asking all these creative questions. <laughs> when the, you know, the sun's going down, like this would be a good kind of warm up. And it actually was in a way that as much as I love an October wedding and I I'm, may have more meetings with folks about that script, um, made me think 
that script, uh, which uh, takes place mostly in a house of like maybe a family of like 12 people. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, at least at the very end, a lot of blood, a lot of stunts, a lot of effects. And going into making this little short film with two people in a cabin in the woods made me just think about like, how freaking stressed out would I be to try and do all of that as a feature? And it's one of those things you don't necessarily think about as a writer, but once you're in a director's chair of like, if you have a dinner table scene with 12 actors sitting around that table, <laughs> you have to get a close up of each actor and their eye line has to match so that you're never confused watching that scene. Yeah. That takes longer to set up than like two people fighting in a bathroom. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Cause that's just one camera and you just, you know, make sure you work with a, an, an, uh, a choreographer that it looks like the hits land and you work with a sound designer in post to make sure it sounds like a good hit. Yeah. But like, uh, so I kind of got to thinking like, okay, how can I do an October wedding in a much smaller way? How can I do that with like three people or five people in the house and gave me a completely different idea for how to go about it. And, um, and, uh, partly inspired by some of the work that you two have been doing. No, um, no, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, so I'll definitely be bugging the two of you once I have a draft that is anywhere near good. Oh my God, I can't uh, wait. But, uh, We're in the end. Uh, in yes. the end, finally. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm very excited to hear that. I, I, um, I haven't done anything like that in terms of like the short films and whatnot, but I do think there has to be a level of like, not ignorance, but almost like you can't honestly understand what you're getting into when you take under a, a like a, take a project of that magnitude on mm -hmm. because otherwise it, it's terrifying. You might like think yourself into paralysis. There has to be a certain level of, Oh, I didn't know it was going to be like this. I guess I'll just have to do it now. Cause I'm already here. There's a level of like <laughs> midway naivete where you're just like, Oh, I didn't know. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, I keep wishing I could link a video that it's, it's near impossible to find, but if, if anyone is interested in filmmaking and doesn't mind watching a French film that can definitely be long in parts, uh, it's called uh, La Nuit Americaine, or Day for Night. I, yeah. And it's a movie about making movies. And there's a scene that I think actually Wes Anderson kind of used as an homage in American Express commercial, mm -hmm. where it's, the scene starts with the director saying, cut. And you're just watching him on one long take go from the director's chair to his trailer and he talks to maybe 20 people mm -hmm. in the space of that like three minute take because they're all coming up to him like okay with this next scene which gun do you want to use he's going to shoot him it's going to be the big scene at the end of the movie where that character dies do you want this gun do you want that gun uh what shirt do you want, want him to wear uh, and, and his hair how does his hair look he's, he's walking right alongside do you want him to go off to the side and they're all getting in he's just like i need to go to the bathroom leave me alone <laughs> it's like every day being the director you get asked all these questions and you have to either know or say, I don't know, and be able to have like a little stop and chat meetings by figuring out what works best for the story or the character. And then sometimes they might come back and say, you know what, I actually don't like that. And you have to defend it in a way that you are repairing that relationship. A lot of work. But like I, like I was trying to get at earlier, like having that through line of like, okay, what is it that you're really trying to say as a storyteller? Yeah. Like uh, what that image that you want the poster to be and from there you can kind of go through to uh what you want things to look at and uh look like and feel like and sound like throughout the film right. and, uh, and, and that was in my initial pitch packet for uh the director and uh the producer when they they gave me the script and from there that's been kind of like my 
my Bible all the way through that like whenever I was, I had a binder with me on set and everyone asked me a question, I would just kind of leaf through it and go, let's do this. And uh, the troops fell in and we got it done. Yeah. It's like your anchor. It's like your through line. As long as you keep a hold of that through line in that one thing, it's going to inform every decision that you make and you'll always have that thing to come back to. Um, all right. Well, well, Nate, is there anything, uh, is there anything else we need to get people to know about trust me? Like, and about your work, what do you want to, what do you want to let people know? Uh, so, uh, it's, it's still a ways out before it comes out. Mm -hmm. Um, if you would like to follow along, uh, we've got a website, trustmemovie.com. Um, it'll get filled in more and more as it becomes more available, but it's still ways out before it's available for viewing online at your local film festival um uh if you want to see me share cat gifts online you can follow me on twitter uh that's all i can think about you're great on twitter we're not done with him yet though not we done still, we still have a trifecta we still do. have the fun stuff like we we wanted to get your fun personal yeah professional yada yada but now we gotta dive into the dig dig deep yeah so the trifecta is one thing that we are watching, one thing that we are listening to, and one thing that we are reading that we think other people will dig. So, Carl? Where we, where do you want to start this week? I want to start with reading. Oh, reading is actually really easy for me. I am... <laughs> I always, Show off. I always have a book that I want to recommend. Okay. I am a capricious reader, and I'm not ashamed of it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm going to recommend a book by George Saunders called The Brief and Frightening Reign of Phil, and is uh, for fans of Douglas Adams, Terry Pratchett kind of stuff, mm -hmm. a book about an island where only one person is allowed to live on it at a time, mm -hmm. and you are in charge of all of the, uh, the governing and the lawmaking for that one person, even though that one person is you, and how the rest <laughs> of the world interacts with those decisions. Very timely, I won't say why, but uh, mm -hmm. I think it is uh, understated in its levels of sardonic wit, mm -hmm. and uh, if you guys aren't reading anything by George, you're missing out, because he really is the second coming of uh, the great Brit writers, even though I don't think he's actually British, mm -hmm. but he's got a very Monty Python slant to his work, and I, I appreciate his charm. Mm-hmm. I read books. You read books. Nate, do you read books you want to tell us about? Uh, I was going to ask if it was okay to say I'm reading a screenplay. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Jenna says it every I week. I say it all the time. Jenna says she reads her own <laughs> screenplays. Uh, so uh, the Blacklist came out recently. Yes. So, mm -hmm. Folks who do not know, uh, a list of the uh, most liked scripts in Hollywood that are yet to be produced. Uh -huh. And uh, I usually, like my holiday treat to myself is finding a handful of scripts on there that I just didn't happen to know about and pick one up. And I read one that presses every button uh, of the, for like the kind of movie I like to see in theaters. It's called The Mother. Um, mm, I'm super excited that you're mentioning this. Uh, and it's, uh, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about it because I don't know if I should even be reading it. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a badass lady hit woman script. And, uh, the, and the way it's written uh the the style of the writing and just it, it's, so it's so cool i can't it's almost yeah. lyrical i like how quick and uh to the point yeah. it is but also it has an ebb and flow that i haven't seen in a lot of screenplays par for miss jenna writes Meh. Meh. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, I second that. I uh, I agree with you 100%, Nate, that I can't wait for that to get made. I think it's, is it Netflix? Netflix? I, th- I think Netflix bought it, yeah. I think Netflix bought it. Oh, man. Yeah. We're not in the know or anything. Nah. <laughs> um... I can't remember if I talked about this book or not. You probably already did. Um, but it's so it's called The Last Werewolf, and it's by Glenn Duncan. Hold on, for those of you playing the Team Slight drinking game, <laughs> anytime that Jenna mentions werewolves, vampires, vampires. witches, or supernaturals, take a drink. <laughs> Congratulations! It is that episode. And listen, I'm not going to tell you what the it's a, it's high concept, and that the title is the book. It's about the last werewolf. I don't know if you guys knew this. So it's uh, <laughs> it's a guy. He's a werewolf. He's getting hunted. <laughs> I'm not pitching it very well, but Glenn Duncan is an amazing, amazing writer. Like I cracked this book on the recommendation of a friend mm. uh, a few years ago, and. It was one of the few books that I wasn't able to put down. Like, normally I get pretty distracted and I read two or three books at a time and it's it's whatever. But it's humorous, it's dark, it's bloody, it's heartfelt, it's... I can't recommend it highly enough. So I would check out Glenn Duncan. He also wrote a book called I, Lucifer that I really liked. Ooh, I, Lucifer is really good. Yeah, same guy. So, yeah, The Last it. Werewolf, that would, that would be my suggestion. Yeah. So now, uh, music. What are you listening to, Mr. Slominski? Nate, I don't know if you're a frequent listener of the show, but I try to get all the street cred anytime I get the opportunity. So, uh, are you hear about hip-hop right now? No, not, <laughs> this, this week it's completely different, record store nerds. Um, <laughs> so I was uh, re-watching a great documentary, Dig, for those of you who haven't seen it. You should probably check it out. It is about the rivalry between... Uh, two really good, but two very different bands, the Brian Jonestown Massacre and the Dandy Warhols, one going on to be uh, quite a respected record store band and another being somewhat of a mainstream success. Mm-hmm. Um, however, because of that, I've been listening to the Dandy Warhols Latter-day Catalog because when that was being made, you know, all of their shit was being optioned for like cell phone commercials or the beginning credits of Veronica Mars, you if betcha. you will. Uh, they put out four albums after that, and every single one of them are actually more mature, mm-hmm. better produced, and mm-hmm. smarter on every level beyond like the um, spaghetti western tonality of their early shit. And Interesting. I their newest album was it? I wrote it down. <laughs> Distortland is phenomenal. It's really good uh you guys should check it out and the album preceding that this machine um which is a reference to this machine kills fascists which i also appreciate some of the most fucking greatest tongue-in-cheek writing i've ever heard as far as lyrics are concerned and just really good rock and roll that isn't too rock and roll cool so yeah dandy warhols guys just like the Dandy Warhols already. Can you just like them, please? <laughs> Nate, what have you been listening to? Uh, so, uh, falling in with the Jenna Wright camp of just listening to weird sounds while yeah. writing. Uh, so, I have done specifically that before, just listening to Rain, but like, uh, usually I've been creating playlists of like something that like 
if I'm writing something science fiction-y, listening to science fiction soundtracks, mm-hmm. kind of, I feel like I'm in space right now. I can write a space scene. But, uh, and you make great suggestions on Twitter of, of soundtracks for people to check out as well, songs and soundtracks. We've had the back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, But there's one song that like is the, like whenever I feel like I'm lost or I don't know what I'm doing, I'm like, that's it, I'm giving up on the script, I'm done with it. I try to have one song that is in my head, the trailer song for my movie that is yet to be finished draft one. I do that and, too. Uh, for me, yeah, uh, for, for me... Uh, uh, for the current script, uh, it's "The Way" by Zach Hemsey. Nice. Um, yeah, and that one, I like. Whenever I'm just lost in a script, I just listen to that one over and over again. It's a really nice, slow build, uh, and it, it feels like a good film music for me. Where it's like, it almost feels like it's a little incomplete, and that little bit of that's missing are the images that are popping up in your head. Like, okay, I gotta get these out and put these on paper. Would you say that it help you helps you find the way? Nope. <laughs> I hate myself. You should. I just want to. I, I need to go on the record. I have listened to that uh, the the Zach Hemsey CD. That well, not CD, but like digital, whatever. The way was one of like the go to tracks that I listened to. Cool. When I started going to the gym frequently. All right. So all this weight loss is thanks to <laughs> that and the Inception song. So I don't know if I'm really the best gym. Mombasa. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I didn't have anything to listen to, and then we actually heard a band today that I really liked and I had never heard of called The Hard Fi. Oh, yeah. Which apparently is a British band that put out three albums that I had never heard of, and they're great. They're rock and roll, Brit Rock. Well, Brit Rock. When were they around? What years? Um, I was in school when I heard them first. Their first album, I want to say, was 2004. Five, so they're latter day Britpop guys. If you like Britpop, if you like jangly guitars, if you like harmonies, hard fi. I'd never heard of them before, but I'm going to check them out now. Uh, their first album, Stars of CCTV, is worth checking out, even if you're not into that kind of shit. Uh, fan, 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 fucking tastic band. Cool. What you been watching? I mean, Carl and I have both been watching the same thing. We went to go see freaking Star Wars last night. And I know we can't really talk about it, no spoilers, but I know that there's been a very mixed reaction on the interwebs, and both Carl and I uh, unabashedly loved the film from start to finish, so we are not in the haters camp. Yeah, I mean, real, real quick, before we dive in, I realize you are of two minds on Star Wars right now. There are people who appreciate filmmakers making good films and Star Wars fanatics that want good Star Wars movies. Never the two shall meet, apparently. (laughs) Never the two shall meet. You should see Nate's face right now. (laughs) It's weird that, like, I feel like it's this... There's a certain type of Star Wars fan, which I hate to designate the word fan with, Mm. that is out of one side of their mouth will say, uh, what was it, episode... Uh, not Rogue One, um, but the Force, uh, the Force Awakens. Awakens. Yeah, that they had one side of their mouth. That's just a New Hope all over again. It's just a total remake. It's crap. And then say the other side of their mouth, like, what are they trying to do? Something new and different and interesting? How dare they? They should just make another Star Wars movie. It's like, yeah. Where's like, what is that like tightrope you're expecting anyone to make when they're making like a two hundred fifty million dollar movie? What? It, yeah. And yeah, I. I yeah. <laughs> we, we don't have to go down we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. We're just gonna say 
Carl and I are firmly on the two thumbs up side of that argument. Also, podcast listeners, I may do a special 30-minute rant <laughs> episode where I tell you how you're all wrong. <laughs> what have you been watching, Nate? Anything? Uh, I've been watching just a bunch of stuff on TV lately, but the, the movie that I've seen most recently was a recommendation from Twitter. I was looking for a spooky movie to watch while uh, my not-so-spooky horror movie-loving wife was out of town. And uh, it was an interesting film I kind of digged uh, called Starry Eyes. <gasps> I've never seen that. Yeah. Uh, it, I really enjoyed it. I thought like uh, there were definitely like some interest, some good performances. Um, cinematography was a lot. Uh, was definitely something that kind of piqued my interest, and uh, kind of asked the question of that I think a lot of artists struggle with. Like, if you're given the opportunity to sell your soul for you know the creativity that you want in your life, would you do it? And uh, it, it reminded me a little bit of movies like uh, Taxi Driver, mm. um, where. The, there's a part of it that you're like afraid for that character going into that creepy scenario, but then you're kind of wondering, wait a second, should I? Is, is the main character the monster? If I, <laughs> I not been paying close enough attention, you got duped. <laughs> those uh, those directors, I think, just got hired to do the reboot makewell of Pet Cemetery. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember those reading that guys. article on a site that doesn't deserve any plugs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So we will not plug them. Screw you guys. Um, but yeah, so they have definitely gone on to uh, to capitalize on Starry Eyes a bit because I think Starry Eyes was one of their first things. So I got to check that out. I think it's on Netflix. Um, well, yeah, that's great. Nate, it has been a pleasure and a joy having you on this podcast today. Where can we find uh, you on the internet? So Here. all the lovely people. I know he said... On the, on the things, just to reiterate. Sure. Uh, if you would like, uh, don't at me. Uh, you can find <laughs> Smart me man. At, uh, Nate Ruger uh, on Twitter. Um, I think you can just look up look me up, Nate Ruger, on Facebook as well. Um, I usually don't friend people unless I've met them, on, which is why you can find me on Twitter, and I don't mm -hmm. mind sharing silly cat gifts and, <laughs> and the like with you over there. Uh, but uh, that's mostly where you can find me online these days. That's great. So you are going to be finishing up Trust Me, and we will keep an eye out for that on the festival circuit and hopefully coming to a theater near you. Let us hope. <laughs> Miss Jenna Wright, where can we find you? I am at Ace Jenna on the Twitters, and I am Jenna Wright on all of the other junk and stuff. Now, she's been playing it pretty close to the, the chest, vest, whatever. <laughs> Uh, but what's the big thing that's happening this weekend that uh, our listeners should be aware of? I'm just fin putting the finishing touches on the prequel to my Hellion novel, and so maybe that's going to be coming to an Amazon near you fairly fairly soon. Oh, just... <laughs> yeah, so I wrote the novel, and I was like, this needs a prequel, so I wrote a, a short prequel to that, and I am uh, finishing that up probably tonight and tomorrow, so hopefully... In the next couple of days. So we've been hurriedly rebranding you all weekend. I just put up my new picture. <laughs> so by, by hurriedly rebranding, I mean Carl has been doing a lot of heavy lifting. That's right. For hugs and kisses. What? Uh, where can we find you? You can't. There uh, 
<laughs> send a carrier pigeon to my actual address. And if you haven't done that, you can find me on Twitter at, at @kidreverie. I'll tell you you're wrong about your theories about Last Jedi and why you're wrong about why you don't like them. Also, you can find me on Instagram at my name, Carl Slominski. If you can spell Polish last names, you deserve to find me. I never update that shit. Also, at slowmotionart.com, by the way, all the shit I'm working on right now is genius, and you should buy it when it comes out. <laughs> all right. Until next time, Nate, what is our motto to hashtag? Shut up, make stuff. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>